The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. tuned in to Political Prisoner Radio. My name is Scotty Reed, broadcasting from behind these enemy lines known as USA Inc. Today's date is December the 27th, 2015. Glad to be on these airways with you on this Sunday night. I hope that my voice finds you safe and sound, uh, that you made it through the weekend, that you made it through this hectic holiday season and nothing bad happened to you because a lot of bad things have been happening out there. Uh, let me go ahead and open up the mic of our co-host and co-producer, Sister Amigel. Sis, do we have you on the line? Hey, good evening, Scotty. Good evening to you, Sis. Uh, tonight we have uh, um, a full program for them tonight, not, you know, that our programs are empty or anything like that, but we do have uh, two guests that will be joining us tonight. Uh, during the first hour, we will be speaking to uh, Prison Radio's own Noelle Hanrahan, and she will be coming on to speak with us to give us an update on the case involving the long-held political prisoner and revolutionary Mumia Abu-Jamal. Uh, the courts in Pennsylvania are currently hearing the case uh, where he has sued them for medical treatment in relation to the hepatitis C virus that he suffers from. And from what I've read, thousands of other prisoners are suffering from. And there have been some bombshell revelations, um, according to several media reports I have read. And, and Noel Hammerhan uh, has been intimately involved in this case. And I can't wait for her to come on and share this information with our listeners. Now, during the second half of tonight's program, we'll also be speaking with uh, Josie uh, Shapiro, who is a political prisoner advocate for Eric G. King, a 28-year-old vegan anarchist who was arrested and charged with the attempted firebombing of a government official's office in Kansas City, Missouri, in September of 2014. He is currently being held in facilities run by the private prison profiteer and human trafficking company, Correction Corporations of America, and reportedly is being targeted and abused by guards as he is being held in solitary uh, confinement. Uh, we have about a couple of minutes before um, Noel Hammerhand will be joining us. Sis, did you have any updates that you would like to quickly share? And if we have any more, we'll try to get those in before we go off air tonight. Yeah, there's actually a lot of stuff going on. First, I wanted to say I think there's um, some feedback on our mics. I don't know. I'm hearing it like on my end. Um, we'll try to fight through that. Um, okay. This is something that uh, I have noticed. It doesn't show up um, going out over the airs, uh, but I do hear like myself talking back to me. But I, I, I don't know what what that is. It's not that bad, uh, so right. we'll we'll fight through it. 
So before right. before um Hello, uh, this is Noel. Hey, hey, Sister Noel, uh, good to speak to you tonight. Uh, Sister Nija was about to give us a quick update of an event, um, but um, if Sister um, Nija, if you would share that, and we'll get on with our interview with uh, Sister Noel. Sure. Um, I was just going to say something briefly about uh, parole support for uh, Herman Bell. Yes. And yes. But we can talk about all that later. Yes, and we have posted some information to our political prisoner radio page about uh, Brother Herman. Actually, talked about him last weekend as well. I learned a lot more about him, and you know, he's just one of many of the political prisoners being held in the United States that that rightly should be set free. But uh, we're going to talk about another political prisoner uh, specifically, and we're talking about revolutionary. Uh, Mumia Abu Jamal. Uh, again, he has a a case that is being heard in the courts in Pennsylvania. Um, the case is Abu Jamal versus Karestes. Am I pronouncing that right, Sister Noel? Yes. Yes. And in this case, you know, while it does focus on the refusal of the Department of Corrections in Pennsylvania to uh, provide him with adequate health care treatment for the hepatitis C virus, but this could, as we have been talking about for a couple of weeks, could have wider Im implications. So without further delay, uh, Sister uh, Noel, thank you for joining us tonight. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you do over there at Prison Radio. I'm a big fan. Great. Um, I'm happy to be with you. Well, where 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 should we start, Ken? Because everybody hasn't heard about this case. I, I, I assume most of the listeners of Political Prisoner Radio has. But in case we have any new listeners out there just tuning in, uh, could you tell them uh, some background on the case? So as many people know, Mumia Abu-Jamal is a revolutionary journalist who's in prison. He did 30 years on death row in Pennsylvania. For the last four years, he's been doing life without possibility of parole at FBI Mahanoy. So he's been in for 34 years. He had an extreme health crisis that began not this past August, but the August before, which culminated really in his having to go from the prison to an ICU, to an emergency critical care unit, on March 30, 2015. That was very serious, because as anybody knows, if there's any hospital, they're near death. So Mumia had a near-death experience. He was in renal failure. And we have been engaged in trying to figure out what Mumia had and how to mobilize the public and the legal defense team to rally supporters so that we could literally save his life. And we have been doing that. We have been on it. We have been super aggressive. And it brought us to court. I mean, we had, he immediately filed a grievance about his treatment in March and the treatment and the diagnostic care that he had received before that. We've been pursuing that extraordinarily aggressively. And we filed in September a preliminary injunction motion to hear his case so that we could get him these new life-saving drugs. So hepatitis C, as many people know, 
Um, it's the most infectious disease in the United States. It kills more people than HIV. It's the predominant cause of liver cancer and liver transplants. It affects one in seven African-American men. The prison populations are particularly affected. There's like a 17% um, rate of infection. So it's the most infectious disease in the U.S. So it's very serious. Mumia has was exposed to hepatitis C, and they never tr tested him to see if he was acute or had chronic hepatitis C. Okay. So we demanded they do that. He got that testing in July. We knew that he had liver damage, that he had extra hepatic symptoms, which is a skin condition that was so severe, the worst skin condition that doctors had ever seen, both at the outside institution and at the inside institution. So we very much advocated for him, and we were in court this past week bringing the Department of Corrections to court and grilling them with three days of court, and we just crushed them. So can take a little bit more time. The court has to produce the transcripts. There are briefs filed three weeks after that. And then we will hear from the court about whether Mumia gets the cure to hepatitis C, which is a one pill a day for 12 weeks with a 95% cure rate. Now, to, I just want to highlight how widespread this is. I had, did not even know about this problem, even though, you know, I try to stay informed with, you know, other group of activists that I work closely with and trying to stay on top of what's happening across the prisons in the United States and actually globally when we look at the uh, global private prison uh, companies of the GEO Group and the Correction Corporations of America. And we knew that the healthcare system was bad, but in terms of how widespread hepatitis C is, I have read that this affects thousands of, of prisoners just in Pennsylvania alone, not to mention across the nation. And, and I've heard some people describe it as a pandemic. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It's 100 times more infectious than HIV. There are no preventive measures, no education being done with inside the Pennsylvania prisons about this situation. And you have a significant portion of the population, 17 to 20 percent, who are infected. It's infectious. You know, so it's like mm -hmm. it's um, it's a public health imperative to treat this disease. Uh, it is going to cost much less if it's treated at the outset. Um, because it is infectious, and if it is let to go to cirrhosis of the liver. Now, one thing that we all know, I mean, we, we know about the fact that the prison system in this country is designed to be an extension of slavery. I mean, so we know it. But when you see it in court and when you prove it, I mean, the way in which these public officials, the Department of Corrections Medical Director Paul Noel got up on the stand and he literally said that they're treating five cases with the new antiviral drugs. The liver society told them that they couldn't use interferon in 2013, so they stopped that regimen. They designed, he said on the stand, we have it, we've proven it, we've had it in the transcript. They took 22 months to develop a new protocol to treat hepatitis C. When there's a cure, the protocol is give them the drugs, there is a cure. But they waited for 22 months before treating anyone. They only selected five people to treat. And those people have a very specific uh, symptom of hepatitis C, end stage, uh, throat, varicose 
thrombosis, which means they bleed out from the throat. Mm. The only they so when they identify end stage folks, they put a camera down their throat. They saw that they were going to potentially be at a, a, a situation where they would be bleeding out and dying. So they didn't want to have these people, these five people, bleed on their carpet. Mm. But what about the other thousand? Mm-hmm. There are ten thousand people who have hepatitis C who are active and acute in Pennsylvania prisons. Um, and and the thousand are at a stage of where they're dying of dying of diseases endemic to hepatitis C. They have hepatitis C clinics. They're literally watching them die. That is what we learned on the stand. Because we've, we're bringing this case it's going to change the way hepatitis C is treated in Pennsylvania. And we all have to demand it. It has to be a public grassroots campaign. It has to be a political campaign. It has to be a legal campaign. And we're, we have to win this. We are going to win this. These are our mothers, our brothers, our fathers are in here. So these are our people. We're not going to stand aside. And it, it will it, also change things nationally. Well, that, we that was going to be my next question. Is... By this suit alone. Yeah, that was going to be uh, my next question is this could potentially have wider implications in setting a precedence nationwide as in regards to health care access for prisoners. I think we really have to drive it home, but we have the opportunity because we have the evidence. You know, it's one thing to believe that they're uh, doing what they do, and it's another thing to prove it. Well, we just proved it in court. Mm -hmm. One very telling piece of this was that Paul Noel, the director of medical for Pennsylvania, when he got up on the stand, he's worked for them for like 15, 20 years in different capacities. He said it was the first time he's ever testified. That means that pro se litigants don't get far enough and that prisoners don't have legal access to the courts. So they, while they've had sufficient grievances, they've not been able to crack the nut of getting into federal court. Mm-hmm. But we did that. Mm-hmm. And we also prevented them they wanted to take their interim hepatitis C protocol, that they called it, and they wanted to suppress it. On the second day of court, they went to the judge and said, we're only going to give this to you, the judge, and to the other side if it's under a seal. Well, as they handed it to the judge, I walked out of the courtroom and filed a right-to-know request for that document citing it. And so the next day, we come to court, by the end of the day, the judge is saying to our attorneys, you have to agree to sealing that document. And our attorney said, no, it's already been decided. And I went up to our attorney and said, what's been decided? The Right to Know office in Pennsylvania called the Department of Corrections and told them they could not prevent that document from becoming public. So we make, we're going to post that later tonight, I think. And this protocol will just knock your socks off. It's like the revisitation of Joseph Mengele. This is incredibly explosive material where they put on paper that they have a cure and they're not going to treat our people. Now, you know? Sister Noel, now I know when a person lies on the stand under oath, that's called perjury. What What is it called when a attorney attorney knowingly presents false testimony, whether that's in the form of a deposition or, or any other uh, information that they present to the court. What is that called? Is that perjury too? Because this occurred in this case. You know, it, I don't know what it's called, but to 
tell people, you know, it's always, it's a, to tell people what happened, to like, to see it in front of us. So the last witness of the day, he gets up on the stand and Robert Boyle, our attorney from New York with Brett Grody, hands him his affidavit and says, uh, sir, is this your affidavit? And he said, no. So Robert is like, okay, well, what part of it is your affidavit? Here's your signature. And he goes, page four where I signed it. I signed that page, but the rest of it's not my affidavit. And so Robert Boyle takes the document, walks back to the Department of Corrections counsel, Laura Neal, compares it, says, well, you gave it to us. Is this the same document? It is exactly the same document, four pages. He walks back up to the witness and he says, Dr. Noel, which part of this declaration is not your declaration? And he said, paragraph 21. And then the Department of Corrections lawyer starts babbling and says, I went through it with him. I talked to him about it in the parking lot this morning. The facts in paragraph 21 are correct, to which Dr. Noel from the stand interrupts her and says, the numbers are correct, but the conclusion is false and misleading, and I didn't sign it. And I told you wow. in September, and I told you in December, and I told you in the parking lot this morning before we went into court that that was not my testimony. Mm-hmm. Now, the crucial it's, – it's shocking. In the court, you could drop a pin in it. The judge was appalled. It was shocking. Sister Mijo, did you have any questions? All right. So, so basically at that point, you know, her her testimony had basically been provided to her, or or what the or what the state or Department of Corrections said, was expecting her to say. A, she said it was a clerical error that they had prepared his affidavit and that they went to him that he had said, "Oh no, I can't sign paragraph 21 because it's not true," um, and they were supposed to take it out and get him to sign the right one. Well, it got mixed up and. She said it was a text, but here's the thing. It wasn't a mix-up because, because, in fact, she submitted that affidavit in September to try and block the preliminary injunction hearing. And then the judge, who the magistrate who originally denied the preliminary injunction, we got an order from the magistrate that said there was no preliminary injunction. And we had to appeal to the district court judge above her to actually get him to order the hearing that we had in December. But she came out with a denial. She cited to that very paragraph it was one of her reasons why she was denying Mumia care. So, so she knowingly proffered false affidavits to the court and I think she should be disbarred. I think there should be a bar complaint and I think there should be sanctions and it certainly did not help her case. Though she kept saying it it means the same thing and finally the judge said you just need to be quiet. Wow. And um, that's the other question that we have um, had to do with a physician who had no experience or understanding of hepatitis C. You know, there's different quote-unquote experts that they put up. They put up a guy who was the head of Rikers Medical 
and whose can, whose co company had its contract canceled because of all the debt at Rikers. Well, we tried to introduce evidence of the reason why the contract was canceled and the 15 deaths, but we, the judge wasn't going to hear it. The judge said, look, I'm not offering him as an expert on correctional overseeing. He's a heptologist. He's like a liver doctor. So we're just going to hear from him about this. I'm very interested in hearing Mr. Cohen's opinion about the liver stuff. So they put forth a number of experts, except at the, the last witness, Dr. Paul Noel contradicted them all because these APRI scores that they were, they, the judge was buying it. For two and a half days, the judge was, uh, the app was saying in court, the APRI scores, Lumia didn't qualify for being treated. But that fell apart at the end of the day because Judge uh, Paul Noel from the Department of Corrections said, we don't use the APRI score anymore. We use a C-HALT score. The C-HALT score has Lumia as a 63% chance of having liver cirrhosis. So that just blew their own experts out of the water. And then also, I mean, it's just, and the fact that when their treatment protocol was finally introduced, when we got it, uh, it was clear that they, who cares about what scores people have on their liver cirrhosis tests because they're not treating liver cirrhosis. They're treating nothing. They are treating nothing but the thrombosis, Pharisees, throat bleeders the people who are going to bleed out, they are treating five people with a very, you know, significant but very small group of people who have one way of dying. They're not treating the other 90% of the people who are dying, nor have they treated people in the last 22 months. No one. They are watching people die. Right. Right. And as far as... Um you know, specific testing and the, I guess, the contagiousness. Like, I'm familiar that some prisoners um, inside of, like, general population have actually contracted hep C through um, unclean, you know, eating utensils, you know, and other things that aren't, you know, properly um, taken care of in the facility, Um you know, and I'm just, I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, people would not have a clear understanding, you know, nationwide that, that hep C is such a big problem inside of the prison system. And I'm really, really happy personally that, you know, that this, you know, is going to set a precedence, you know, in Pennsylvania and that, you know, prisoners will get um, the medical care that they need and that they deserve. We're really going to have to fight for it. And one thing I'm thinking of right now is, you know how once you see the window of how bad things are, you, you don't really, the judge, right, or everybody else, they don't really want to understand how bad it is. I mean, it was clear at court. But we cannot let them forget. I mean, we have to make sure that this is blown wide open. Like that there's expose after expose after expose. Because right. They will cover it up. They'll minimize it. But the testimony was extraordinarily clear. I want to underscore what you just said. Because, you know, I have been doing Google searches on Abu Jamal versus Karestes. And no main, what they call mainstream media or corporate media, 
not a single report. The reports is all coming from alternative media. You know, San Francisco Bayview, which does a good job in, in, in you know, covering issues like this. Prison Radio, your organization, uh, as well as some of the other political prisoner, you know, uh, websites out there who, who focus on these type of issues. But not a single report from MSNBC, ABC, Fox, nobody. I'm like, this is... This is like to me like a conspiracy to keep the people ignorant about what's going on. You know, it 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 takes a drumbeat. It takes people being incredibly uh, voracious in terms of like not letting them off. Like I knew this one guy who did a lot of work on the case of um, torture in the Chicago um, Police Department, um, where he just pounded, uh, pounded the detective that everybody knew was torturing people. I mean, he just kept on, kept the drumbeat going. And I think it's true also for like Kids for Cash, that story that broke a couple of years ago in Pennsylvania. It's about all of us with an incessant drumbeat, not letting them push this under the rug. Um, and it's, and it does take us, it takes everybody. I mean, every, every ripple, every, and, you know, if somebody just took a whole roll of stickers and just plastered it everywhere, like something so that it cannot be ignored, it's going to take that level of work from our grassroots end. It's going to keep – we have to keep going in terms of the um, legal case that we're fighting right now. It's going to take all of us. And, you know, they're so good at hiding or, you know, like – pushing everything under the rug we cannot let them do this because a lot of our family members lives are at stake and i agree and and i'll just say like i just put it in the google search engine and i searched under news i found one what could be considered you know corporate media and that was bet published Mm. an article on it back in april the 2nd but mm. but nothing else, nothing. And I've went through four different pages of, of the search on the case. And and so I want to uh, reiterate what you said. The listeners of this radio program that's listening right now, it is up. You are the grassroots. We can't get this information out there, you know, to a wider audience unless you share it. And like like uh, uh, Sister Noel just said, this uh, this could affect your family members that's in prison right now. This very important case. Sister Noel, um, did you have anything that you would like to share in closing as we get ready to conclude um, this this uh, segment? Uh, with you and please tell people how they can support the work of prison radio or and or uh, support this case because I understand there's legal fees and stuff involved so what we think is that when people jump on board in any way that you can when you send a dollar when you send five dollars when you donate to um, Mumia on Indiegogo it's bit.ly slash cure now it's www.prisonradio.org there's a link at the top then you'll get information. You'll get the blow-by-blow of what's happening in court, and you'll get a lot of information. So we really want people to donate so that they can be in the loop. Um, And then do whatever you can do. Amplify this information. Take it to your communities. It does make a difference. It makes a huge difference, and you never know what the tipping point is going to be. So we say every action matters, every gift matters, 
and please just keep, and Lumia is going to lead the way. You know, Lumia's case is going to really bust open this. And so thank God that um, we're in a position to do this. And it's because you guys are helping us. We have like, we've raised $115,000 for the medical legal campaign in the last nine months. We had 1,500 people do it. I mean, every donation. It was like mostly $25 gifts. So very, very important that everybody lean in and we do this together. And how is Mumia personally? How How is he spiritually, mentally, and, you know, uh, obviously he has these physical issues, but how how is he doing, you know, in his spirit? You know, I just got off the phone with him right before you guys called, so like maybe, and so he's feeling better. His skin rash has receded. It's not over 80% of his body. It's only over 20%, but it could come back at any moment. He knows he's not back yet. He was exuberant. He was thrilled at the um, hearing. I mean, he's, when I asked him a couple questions today that I haven't yet been able to produce for broadcast, but I'm going to get to after we finish speaking, um, he said he was angry um, by some of the testimony because it was so disturbing. Mm-hmm. He was thrilled that the legal team and the supporters came through in such a way as to put the DOC on the spot. He was hopeful. He says he's not, you know, he's not predicting, um, but he thinks if you fight, you win. Well, and he's ready to fight. Well, next time you speak with him, please let him know that we are thinking about him and that he's in our thoughts and prayers, and we stand in solidarity with him and all political prisoners. Well, thank you. Thank you both for the work you do. You have a good thank evening, you. Noel. All right, we're going to take a short station identification break, and when we come back, we do have our second guest on the line uh, who's going to share information about political prisoner Eric G. King. You are listening to Political Prisoner Radio, a weekly program that airs on the Black Talk Radio Network every Sunday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Stay tuned. We'll be right back on the other side with our next guest. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. And welcome back to Political Prisoner Radio. Sister Amijo is going to lead us through our next interview with Josie Shapiro, again, who is coming on to speak about Eric G. King. Uh, Sister Amijo. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. We should have Josie on the line. Josie, we have you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Hi. Hi, Josie. Um, Thanks for joining us this evening. Um, can you start us off by giving us like a brief history of uh 
Eric prior to his incarceration and some of the things that, you know, he was involved with and, and I guess how you got involved with uh, advocating on his behalf? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having uh, having me on the show and giving some airtime to Eric's case. It's super appreciated. Um, so Eric King, he was living in Kansas City for some time before his arrest and incarceration. Um, and he was involved with some different, like, anarchist projects out there. <laughs> Something called Kansas City Fight Back and involved with Food Not Bombs, uh, also had started getting involved with coming to uh, letter writing nights for po other political prisoners. Um, and that's kind of what his background was. He also has a background in uh, doing like anti-racist action type work. Um, and how I personally came to be involved was a uh, close friend and former partner of mine is from the Kansas City area, um, and we live out in Denver now, but at the time of Eric's arrest, we heard about what had happened with him, and because of close ties that we have with other friends in anarchist community and organizing there, we decided to reach out and start getting involved. Um, at the time, Eric didn't have a lot of support from his local community, and so it kind of became in the immediate aftermath of his arrest and indictment, it became kind of like a ragtag crew of different folks from across the country who have a long history of doing organizing around political prisoners, um, coming from like different anarchist collectives, anarchist black cross collectives, um, and otherwise. And so now there are six folks who are involved with a defense committee for Eric King um, and help with different, meeting different needs, fundraising, um, keeping his website updated, helping with uh, legal preparation for his upcoming trial, which is set for March 8th of 2016, um, and just trying to help with managing um, all the things that come up with pretrial incarceration and looking towards this trial coming up in March. Sister Mija, were you still with us? Okay, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, so his so you said his trial is coming up in this coming up this March. Yes. Okay. And now is he a considered a state prisoner or is he considered a federal prisoner? He is considered a federal prisoner. So his initial arrest on September sixteenth of twenty fourteen um were for my understanding is for state charges. Then there was a federal grand jury that came back on October 7th of 2014 with four federal charges. So he's being held as a federal uh, pretrial prisoner right now. Okay. Can you explain to us like some of the um, details associated to this case? There's a few things that are written on a couple of websites as to what um, his charges are. Um, but can you give us a brief, you know, understanding of kind of like where we are legally? Yeah, so his initial arrest back in September of 2014, he was arrested under suspicion of involvement in an attempted arson 
at the Office of Representative Emanuel Cleaver um, in Kansas City. And he was originally charged with a single criminal complaint of attempted arson. And then there was a grand jury that was convened um, that came back with further indictments of attempted arson, use of explosive materials to commit a felony, um, and illegally possessing an incendiary device. Uh, our understanding of like his legal situation is that there's also possibility in room for the judge upon sentencing to add on a terrorism enhancement which would mean a much longer prison sentence um, and would mean a possibility of being put into a like control management unit or supermax style prison. That's something that the federal prosecutors have already mentioned to his current lawyer. Um, and so initially with the federal prosecutors, the first deal that they ever offered Eric right out the gate was 30 years. Um, which is pretty substantial considering that even the incident that he's alleged to have been involved in, uh, there was actually no, the incendiary devices that were thrown through this window never ignited. There was no fire damage to the office or the building. Um, all the damage that actually existed was a broken window. <laughs> so offering someone a deal of 30 years seems pretty, pretty outlandish. Now, they came back to him sometime after that with an offer of 20 years, and they mentioned Supermax Prison um, out in Florence, Colorado. And then the most recent offer that they gave him was an offer of 10 years. Um, his support crew has been doing some research over his last uh, six weeks or so around um, other similar cases or other cases of arson, attempted arson within the same federal uh, jurisdiction and, and district that he's in. And we've found some kind of like some surprising things, although maybe not so surprising. There's been a number of uh, white supremacists who were engaged in arson where there was actual damage, um, was very likely to have been a hate crime that got something like 54 months, whereas they're offering Eric 10 years, and that's a deal. Um, so his legal situation is, is looking pretty scary for him right now, although he's a pretty strong and, and delightful and joyful human being, so he's pretty resilient, um, even with that, and you know, something that he's coming up against. It just, um, this is Scotty uh, speaking, and, and thank you again for joining us tonight to share information about Eric's case, but the very fact that you mentioned that they're even considering a terrorism charge, you know, it's just ludicrous to me when we just saw uh, four white supremacists, four or five white supremacists in Minneapolis shoot people at a okay. peaceful rally and their most stiffest charge is, is an assault charge, not even an attempted right. murder, no terrorism. Um, yeah. Wow. But so, you yeah. know, break a window and you're a terrorist. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. You know, with those folks up in Minneapolis, um, those white supremacists, their charges were things like, yeah, assault, rioting, um, whereas 
you would think it would be something like, I don't know, attempted murder. Um, not that I'm looking necessarily for the state to be, you know, doing our bidding for us and charging anyone with anything, but just seeing the inconsistency and the imbalance of what some people are charged with versus others is it's pretty upsetting. Now, from some of the information um, that I read on the website, and we have linked to the website for those who would like to get more information on Eric's case, you can go to supporteric.king.wordpress.com. That's supporteric.king.wordpress.com. But I understand that um, he is in what I call, you know, the largest private prison enslaver in the on the planet which is the Correction Corporation of America that is engaged in widespread what we call human trafficking and all of this is legalized by the 13th Amendment which did not abolish slavery but he that is where he's being held in this private prison and I understand that he is being targeted and suffering abuse by guards while he's in solitary confinement is that true yeah, so that is true. He was recently, um, within the last couple of months, moved out of the segregated housing unit. He's back into general population okay. um, at this time, which is really good news um, for him. It's definitely an improvement of just daily conditions for him. I mean, Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, is horrific. I've been to visit Eric several times out there in Leavenworth at CCA, Um the things that he deals with are pretty awful. Uh, it's been a, he's vegan. Eric is vegan, and even now, still um, getting appropriate food is a battle. There are constantly guards who are messing with his food. They'll try and hide meat or animal products into his food. Wow. Um, he recently, actually, he got advice from a guard who was somewhat sympathetic to his food situation. Um, who told him, you know, if they keep refusing to give you the proper food tray, you should just refuse to lock down next time there's a lockdown until you get a proper tray. And he tried it and it worked. And so for at least a few days, he was getting a proper tray, although, you know, slowly they start messing with him again where they see opportunity to. He's also had a lot of struggles with, um, with censorship of his mail. Uh, he's been denied books. Uh, there were some books specifically about the Black Panthers that were denied because CCA considers the Black Panthers to be a hate group and a terrorist organization. Um, and so they wouldn't allow a book about the Black Panthers in, um, even for those of us who do consistent support work for him, not all of our letters get to him. We have to be pretty careful about tracking mail um, and letting the mailroom know that we are tracking our mail. Uh, and that we are very aware of what mail is getting to him and what is not. Um, and then he also was dealing over the summer with some medical situations where he needed specific medical attention and it was extremely difficult for him to get. Uh, so like we see with prisoners in all prisons, there's pretty, uh, pretty obscene levels of medical neglect and, yes. um, mistreatment of folks who are incarcerated even by medical staff who are you know they're not prison guards they should be doctors and nurses who care for these people right. um, and do their jobs and even they aren't doing their jobs properly um 
And one of the last things that's been kind of a, a difficult thing about CCA is they don't, to my understanding, no Corrections Corporation of America facility offers um, in-person visits. Eric's visits and, and to my understanding, all of their, um, all the people who are housed with CCA, the visits that are offered to family and friends are either through glass over one of those telephones or over video. And when he was in the secured housing unit, his visits were only over video. So when you go to visit him, you like go into a trailer on the prison property and there's video screens and you like basically get to Skype. Um, so even visits are somewhat, you know, they're somewhat upsetting. You can't even like hug your friend or give them, you know, that compassionate touch that you know might get them through in between those visits because um, you're separated through glass or you're doing it over a video conference. Yeah, it, it's part of the psychological as well as physical torture. And, you know, Absolutely. You, it's just sickening to me. It's like, you know, these people that work in these uh, facilities and engage in that behavior, you know, to me, they, they are sociopaths. I mean, what kind of sick person gets off on messing with somebody else's food? You know, that's right. just so immature. That's just so childish. But these are the sick type of people who we are, are placing, you know, uh, human beings' lives in their hands. And and so it's just so disgusting to hear those those type of reports. But it's widespread because this is something um, I keep up with a lot. Um, uh, Sister Mija, did you have any other qu questions before we get ready to wrap up this segment? Yeah, I guess um, my other question was, is it with regarding the accusations, um, because the person that was allegedly threatened or the building that was threatened um, had to deal with, I guess, a U.S. Uh, representative, um, you know, is there, I guess, because I'm really shocked by, like, the terrorism charges and certain things. Um, so I guess, are they trying to use this person's political office to say things about, um, Eric's, uh, politics or, you know, what, what is, um, I guess a little bit of like, I guess the history here. Um, I guess that the, the, the politician's name is Emmanuel Cleaver. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. There's another political prisoner. You guys gave him a shout-out on your website, I saw, because his birthday is this coming week, Casey Brezik. Um, and he's also from the Kansas City area. And he is currently serving 12 years uh, for what was an allegedly an attempted assassination on the governor of the state of Missouri. And Casey Brezik didn't face a terrorism charge. Um, Casey Brezik is an anarchist uh, and had been involved in anarchist organizing and social and political milieu in Kansas City area. Uh, but I do think the, the specifics around Eric's case and that, that uh, that kind of political rhetoric coming from the state is really interesting. Uh -huh. That there, there does seem to be a ramping up of 
what the state is trying to do to shut down dissent in this kind of like post-Ferguson world and landscape. And that being just a few, just really like about a month after things in Ferguson just started get, getting going um, and as that struggle was still continuing on, I think that there, there was some threat to the state that was felt very palpable to them at that time um, and continues to feel palpable to them today as that struggle has spread and continued across the country. Uh, I think that the state is doing doing their best to use Eric's case as setting an example and trying to set up a legal precedent for long sentences for people who may may have taken certain actions or maybe a good scapegoat for certain actions. Wow, that, that's a just very good recently, point. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's a very good point, and, and I could see um, that line of thinking on their behalf. Like, for example, set a car on fire, hey, that's terrorism charge. I, I totally uh, understand where you're coming from, and I agree. This is This seems like you know, just an extra effort to uh, 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 crush any kind of dissent and to overcharge people, which is quite common, though, in throughout, you know, sure. the system period, whether it's involving politics or not, you know, they overcharge people. But your point is well taken. You know, again, he broke a window, allegedly. So, oh, it's terrorism charge. Oh, set a car on fire. Oh, terrorism charge. Oh, Throw back right. the tear gas back at the police that they shot at you. Oh, terrorism charge. I ain't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Oh, no. I was just going to mention, you know, also coming out of Ferguson, there's a young man, Josh Williams, who was just sentenced earlier this month. And for an attempted arson is the charge that he ended up with. He's now serving eight years. This is just a kid, you know. He got charged when he was 19 years old. And eight years is an awfully long time for something that didn't even actually ever happen. And I think that there does seem to be kind of a climate brewing right now with these federal charges of setting really clear examples to put fear into people for taking radical actions, whether it be in the heat of the moment or something that's more um, long-term planned. Right. I'm noticing, I mean, majority of our political prisoners are, you know, older um, victims of counterintelligence programs, but, you know, what I'm seeing is a whole nother generation of, you know, millennials that are now becoming um, political prisoners. Uh, basically, I mean, the very same uh, COINTELPRO tactics, just rewrapped and packaged in different, like, policies in the Patriot Act and so many other um, NDAA, um, different pieces of legislation that, like, we could mention. Um, but even here in Baltimore, um, we have two um, political prisoners, uh, Greg Butler, who just had uh, misdemeanors, um, who now they've tried to package and put his case on the federal side. Um, he was allegedly accused of cutting um, a fire hose um, during... Mm -hmm. Um, the rebellion, and then of course we have uh, Raymond Carter, who is the only person that is uh, currently allegedly incarcerated for um, the fire of uh, the CBS, which has basically become like one of the most, you know, iconic images of um, the Baltimore uprising. Right. And now he's he's on the federal side in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, there's a lot of like a lot of young people who've gotten caught up in in these moments and these fractures of this last year and a half or so um, that are facing really long prison sentences uh, for things that really it's. It's disheartening in some ways to see people convicted and then sentenced to these long sentences, uh, but it's also really inspiring at the same time to see people like Eric who and others like Josh Williams uh, who are still being really strong in the face of that and still uh, staying true to their values and their politics and will find a way to fight from the inside while the rest of us do it on the outside. Well, I would like to mention right. that we're trying to prevent our very own Sister Amijo, the co-host and co-producer of this program, from becoming a political prisoner. Um, Sister Josie, did you have uh, any final comments you would like to leave with us as we get ready to wrap up our program? Well, I just wanted to share just a couple of quick things about Eric that might get people excited about writing him. Uh, letters, like people who listen to your show likely know, are a huge lifeline for everybody who's in prison um, and a big connection to all of us on the outside. Uh, just some like real personal things about Eric that uh, might pique people's interest in writing him. He loves anything and everything to do with space. Uh, he's a big fan of dystopian sci-fi literature, and not only does he love boxing, but he's also a phenomenal boxer himself and boxed competitively um, prior to being incarcerated. He's a fantastic, fantastic pen pal. I can't stress that enough. He's really great to write letters with, um, a really funny, warm, and sweet person. Uh, so I'm sure he would love letters from, from new friends near and far. And they can get his address at the website that I gave out earlier? Yeah. Okay, would yep. you get that so out support again? Support Eric King. That is, again, yeah, so, yeah. supporteriking.wordpress.com. Right. Okay. Well, Josie, we, we uh, only have a couple of more minutes left in our broadcast as we prepare to make way for the next program. But I want to thank you for coming on and spending time to share this information about uh, Eric with us and we hope that you will stay in touch and come back again as uh, more developments come about and let us know what's going on yeah thank you so much for having me I appreciate it a lot and Eric will be excited to hear the report back when we talk to him next alright well you, you stay safe behind these enemy lines as I call it and uh, we will be in touch with you likewise be well y'all Thank you. Uh, Sister Mija, we got about four minutes. Did you want to share uh, any um, of those updates? Uh, but again, we do want to recognize the political prisoner birthday this week of Casey Brezik. As Josie uh, mentioned him, his birthday will be in three days on uh, Wednesday, December the 30th. Um, we have also posted his uh, information so that you can write him and that information comes courtesy of nycabc.wordpress.com uh, where you can go and, and look at that calendar of political prisoners and prisoners of war. Uh, anything that you want to share in the last few minutes, Sister Amijo? And I stand corrected. You allegedly had a ski mask, but um, yeah, okay. 
Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that there's um, also some really good um, movement in the case of uh, the Fort Dix Five um, and the Duca brothers. And there is a, uh, I guess, a, a documentary in the works about their case um, and an action in New Jersey, January 6th. And there is a um, noise demo outside of uh, jails and prisons uh, worldwide scheduled for um, New Year's Eve. Um, and I don't know if we've actually shared that on our Facebook page yet. That's in support of all um, prisoners worldwide. And you say that's on New Year's Eve? I, I'll... Uh... Um, check if it's not i'll try to get it posted i got some information um some updates as well i have to share um i gotta do better at that was there anything else um and like i said i had to mention um herman bell's um parole um coming up and needing assistance with uh support for um, his parole, um, there is also a protest um, in New York, January eighth, and that is a protest to stop the G four uh, S and to free um, Palestinian political prisoners, and that is um, through um, Samadin and. Uh, other uh, the Samadin, um Palestinian Prisoner Solidarity Network, along with um, Jericho and other political prisoner groups. That once again is January eighth in New York. You know, um, when you mention the Palestinians, I've been still reading reports about you know people still being killed uh, over there on on a daily basis. And did you see that sick report? about those Zionists uh, having a wedding and were uh, uh, celebrating the killing of that. Remember that baby got killed and and they had some kind of wedding and they had the photograph of the little Palestinian baby that had been killed in that arson attack. And, and I mean, I was like, man, these are some sick people. So uh, just want to let, the, let our listeners know uh, around the globe that we stand in solidarity with you as you fight against uh the same beast that we fighting against, and we just happen to be in the belly of this beast. Uh, let's see. Right. And I guess the last thing I wanted to mention was the, um, I guess the 20th annual dinner tribute to the families of political prisoners. Uh, this will take place January uh, 17th from 3 to 7 in the uh, 1199 Union headquarters, Martin Luther King, um, in in Manhattan. In Manhattan, New okay, in, in New right. York, okay. All right, people, well, we've come to the end of uh, this broadcast. I want to uh, thank Noelle Hammerham from PrisonRadio.org uh, for joining us to share that information about Mumia's uh, case, which could have wider implications uh, for prisoner access to health care all across the nation and we also want to thank uh, 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 Josie for coming on and sharing the information that she shared about Eric King uh, we'll be back on air next week at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern time Sunday night 
uh, Political Prisoner Radio. Remember, you can follow us on social media where we share some information with you. Uh, that is on Facebook. That's Political Prisoner Radio. Uh, with that said, recognize the fact that y'all live behind enemy lines, that casualties are being created every day. And so that you don't become a casualty, you need to develop battlefield awareness, battlefield skills, so that you can decrease the likelihood that you will become a political prisoner or a prisoner of war. Until next week, peace and blessings to all. Oh, mercy, mercy, me.